Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Glad to be here in church on a holiday weekend. Thank you for showing up. Man, the year's halfway over. Did that catch anybody else by surprise? We're halfway done with 2017. Hey, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jared Humphreys. I'm one of the pastors around here. It's my honor to be here with you today and, and, uh, and bring a, a good word that I believe is going to help somebody. Uh, in case I haven't met you, I brought a family, a family picture that we took at Easter that's my whole crew. There's, there's a bunch of us. We call ourselves the Humphreys Bunch. But uh, let, me, let me just interject this right quick. I am so thankful to be part of a church, the following the vision of Pastor Rick, but, but where all of my family is involved in serving in some way or another. Even the little guy, Nathan, he's 10. He's in kid life. And uh, every now and then he steps into their tech booth and helps do all the magic stuff in there. But I'm so thankful to be part of a church where we all can be involved in serving. And, uh, man, it's an incredible thing. Um, I, I got to speak to you guys about six months ago, and some of the feedback I got from that, it was, evidently it was pretty heavy. I don't know, maybe some of you guys were in the room. I promise not to make anybody cry today. Is that a deal? It's a deal? <laughs> I don't want to do that. But um, one of the things that I get to do with New Life, in addition to being a pastor around here, I'm part of the campus development team. And that's the guys that go plant new campuses. We, uh, we remodel from time to time and all this. So several months ago, I got to be in BB as they were getting ready to launch that campus. It's an amazing campus. I got to be with them last weekend. But uh, as we were getting ready to, to launch their facility, we were up there a couple of weeks ahead of time. And, and I was putting in the sound system, lighting, things like this. This one particular day... I, um, I stepped out to my Jeep to get a, a tool or a piece of equipment or something, and, and there's this guy that's driving by on a bicycle. Now, I'm not from BB. I don't know. The people up there know this guy. I don't. He had to have been like 147 years old. He's just old guy on one of them cruiser bicycles, you know. But as he's driving by the front of the church, we had just the day before put up like the, the NLC logo and, and the welcome home and all the, the verbiage on the front of the building. And as he's driving by, he's got this scowl on his face, like trying to figure something out. And all I heard him say was, well, that don't even look like a dang church. <laughs> and I just had to laugh. I'm like, thank you, sir. You've, you've absolutely proven we're not your mama's church, but it's okay. No, but um, it's fun. You enjoying the, the Did You Know series this summer? We're, we're studying some truths found in God's Word, and uh, we're founding it on John 8, 32, the verse that says, then you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Jesus came to bring us freedom, but in order to get freedom, we have to know some truth. And so today I want to talk about a particular truth that's got freedom written all over it. And that's the power of hope and encouragement in your life. Anybody need some hope and encouragement? I know there's times that I do. One of my longstanding desires all of my life has been to be a part of a church where people can walk in off the street and immediately find hope. And immediately leave knowing that Man, God is for me. God loves me right where I'm at. And then he loves me too much to leave me there and leave with the encouragement that God loves them. And I'm thankful to be part of a church. I've been part of a church that, that wasn't necessarily like that, that didn't believe in having fun. Anybody been part of a church like that? I want you to do this just real quick. I want you to take a deep breath and smile. <sighs> Just relax. Hey, we're going to have some fun here this morning, but I also want to talk about some truth as well. I want to submit to you this thought. The most, in, the most spiritual thing you can do in life is to be that person that is the most encouraging person in the room. 
to be that person that wants to lift up somebody in the moment you meet them, that, that can recognize, hey, they're struggling, they need a little bit of help, and I'm going to be the one to help them. That's the most spiritual thing you can do in life. Check out 2 Corinthians 7 and 6. Paul has just finished listing an entire litany of things that was going wrong with the church in Corinth and with his ministry. And then he says, but God who encourages those who are discouraged. I love it when you're going through negatives and you see that but God. Man, that's, that's a cool thing. Why? Because God is bigger than anything we're going through. God has already conquered everything that you face. And we can take confidence and know that he wants to encourage us when we battle discouragement. A pastor was asked one time, what's the single most important thing you do as a pastor? And you, you think about all the things that, that are involved in being a pastor. And, and this guy said, and, and I have to agree with him, that the most encouraging thing, the most important thing I can do as a pastor is to make sure that I stay encouraged. Let me ask you, what's the most important thing you can do as a dad or as a mom? or as a business leader, or as a teacher, as a friend, what's the most important thing you can do? It's to stay encouraged. Why? As a pastor, somebody's going to come to me one day and ask for some encouragement. They're going to need some confidence and some help right where they're at. And if I'm discouraged, I'm not going to be able to help them. I'm not going to be able to be the dad that I need to be when my kids come to me. If I'm discouraged, if I'm more concentrated on what I'm going through and the problems that I'm facing and not be able to help them. So the most, most important thing I can do is to stay encouraged. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 13. We know 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. And we, it ends the chapter by saying three things are going to last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And I look at this and I realize we talk about two of these a lot of times. We talk about two of these way too much. But God has told us these are the three most important values, and they're going to last forever. We talk about faith a lot. Every church has a statement of faith. Every believer has a foundation of faith. This is what I believe about God. This is what I believe about the Bible. Man, we talk about love a lot. There's songs written about love. Anybody ever heard a love song? There's movies written about love. Please, dear God, don't let anybody else write another notebook story because it's just too much, right? We live on love, and we always ignore, we tend to ignore hope. But it's in there. It's in the top three. It's in the, this is what you're going to live on forever. Now, let me be clear. We're not talking about the power of positive thinking. We're not talking about the, I'm just going to say it, and then it's going to come to pass. Or I'm going to think it, and then my life's going to change. Hope is not that. That's wishful thinking. We're talking about hope that is, that is based on the fact that God is bigger than anything I'm facing. That God can conquer and has conquered everything. And then my strength in those troubled times only comes from him. That's the hope we're talking about. So let me ask a couple of questions. If you're going to talk about a solution to a problem, you have to talk about the problem itself. And what's the enemy of hope? What's the enemy of hope? It's discouragement. And man, discouragement's a big deal. Maybe you've faced it before, but it, it's, it's a big deal. One problem with the discouragement is that it knocks you down and you've got to get back up. It knocks you down and you've got to bounce back to get out of it. I'm going to talk about some people in the Bible. And as I talk about their, their problems that they went through, I want you to make a mental list 
of, of what we're talking about because it might apply to where you're at or it might apply to something you've been through. Okay, so we'll start with Moses. Man, Moses had to bounce back from failure. Anybody ever messed up? I've already messed up five times up here right now, and it's okay. Moses messed up. Moses led some people, and they failed to encourage him. They, they started griping about everything that, that Moses was leading them through. Moses is trying to follow God and lead the people somewhere. and Man, oh, they like to complain. Do any of your kids ever complain, or is it just mine? Right, I, if you have the kid that asks, that responds to to uh, correction in this way, I want to talk to you after service. But when when a kid gets corrected, typically they don't come back and say, "Mother, I want to thank you for grounding me," because I can see that it's causing it, it's it's making me learn some character here. Anybody's kids ever say that? Nope. Good. We're all in the same company. Moses had to bounce back from some people that like to complain. That's a big deal. All right, let's look at John Mark, the disciple. Man, he had to bounce back from from discouragement by a religious leader. Maybe you're in this room and you've been through some church hurt. Maybe you've been hurt by some people that should never have hurt you. Church hurts can be the worst hurts to come back from sometimes, but it can happen. John Mark did it. Man, Joseph, (laughs) Joseph had to bounce back from a dysfunctional family. And maybe you've got some crazy uncles and weird cousins, and if not, then we probably need to talk about who you are. I'm just kidding about that. But, but everybody's got that family member that just, I don't want to be around them. Joseph had to bounce back from that. He went to his family one day and said, I have a dream. And they looked at him like he was crazy. Sold him off into slavery. And yet that is exactly what it took to save his family. Joseph bounced back. Elijah. Now, if you want to talk about a man's man, you're going to talk about Elijah. He goes up against the prophets of Baal one day. Now, Baal was the the big anti-god of the day. And there were 450 men, prophets of Baal, that decided they wanted to fight Elijah. Now, let me count real quick. There's a little over 450 in here. So imagine all of you guys against me. I'm not going to stand a chance. But 450 prophets of Baal came against Elijah one day, and Elijah bowed up and killed all of them. You want to talk about a stud, right? But then you go a couple of days later, and one woman criticizes him, and he turns his tail and runs into a cave and starts whining to God that I can't do anything. Dude, you just killed 450 men, and one woman had something to say. Okay, time out real quick. (laughs) you can see this coming wives please please be careful how you say what you say to your men and if it gets out of whack we have re-engaged it meets here on Monday night so shameless little plug marriage ministry but Elijah had to bounce back from that and he did and then you want to talk about David okay so David is known as the man after God's own heart David is known as the guy that was the king of Israel that, that conquered all and, and was like the best king ever. You flip to early in David's life, and he and his men go out to battle. And they left their wives and kids in a city called Ziklag. And so they come back from battle, and they're exhausted. They're just worn out. They get back to Ziklag and realize that all of their wives and kids are gone. All their family's gone. The city's burned. 
You don't talk about discouragement. Anybody ever, ever had a failure in life that, that you just couldn't get past? And then David's men looked at David and said, you know what? We're going to kill you because this is your fault. David hit a low. But you go look at 1 Samuel 30 and 6. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. In the heat of the moment, David got his eyes off of everything that was bad and owned to God and encouraged himself. You can do this. Everybody has to bounce back from something. That's the first problem with discouragement. The second problem is this. Discouragement is powerful. It is a powerful disease. Let me, let me give you some facts about discouragement. First of all, it's a universal disease. Everybody is susceptible. Has anybody in the room been discouraged in the last three months? Yep. Look around. We're, we're all there. Okay? Everybody's prone to get it. Second of this, it's a repeating disease. You can catch it multiple times. It's not like chicken pox when we was kids. You get it once and you're done. No, you can, you can actually catch discouragement again before you get out of it the first time. It's a repeating disease. Third, it's a contagious disease. You catch it from other people. Now, let's be real. We will flat verbally accost a stranger for sneezing or coughing and not covering their mouth. Am I right? We'll fuss at them. Man, cover your mouth. I don't want that because they're sneezing. But yet... You already have somebody in your head, no doubt, that maybe you work with them or maybe it's that family member we was talking about earlier that's so caught up in discouragement that the instant you see them, you just go, takes all the wind right out of your sails. (laughs) Anybody remember the the cartoon strip Peanuts? Remember the character Pigpen? Man, you knew. You knew that when you see Pigpen coming, that dude's got some mess in his life. That dude's got some stank in his life, right? And if he's over there, then that's okay because that's his problem, but he's walking towards me, and he's bringing that mess to me, and I'm going to have to deal with his mess. And then when he walks away, his mess is still here. Now i got to clean it up. That's the way it is with discouraged people. It's contagious. (laughs) It's a pig pen. Here's the thing. Discouragement, it's kind of like quicksand. You get stuck there. And the longer you stay, the harder it is to get out, the more help it's going to take to get out. But here's the big problem with discouragement. It's deadly. If you let it stick around long enough, if you stay there long enough, it's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin the relationships around you. It's just going to tear you up. Every marriage I've ever seen that that, that ended in disaster, it didn't just happen overnight. You don't just get there overnight. You don't just wake up one day. I, you know, dudes don't do this. We, we don't wake up one morning and go, man, I love my wife so much. And it's her birthday next week, and I think I'm going to get her some divorce papers. It just doesn't happen. You don't go there all of a sudden. What happens is you get discouraged. And then discouraged piles on and it piles on and it piles on and it piles on. And if you don't get God in there, if you don't get straight out of this discouragement, it can end in disaster. Why is discouragement deadly? Because you'll believe a lie in that moment that you never would have believed any other time. You'll believe the lie that says, I can't do this. I have a standing rule in my house. My kids will will testify to this. We don't say the words, I can't. I'll fuss at them. We just don't do it. But, But when you're discouraged, when you get trapped there, you'll believe the lie that says, I can't. 
I can't put my marriage back together. I can't, I can't find the right job. I, I can't raise my kids in a way that, that they're going to be any kind of productive members of society. I can't do this. I can't. Nothing's ever going to work. <laughs> hey, welcome to New Life. We love to make people feel better about themselves. So I promised I wasn't going to make you cry, so we're going to get right out of that. So the question number two, is there a way to replace discouragement with hope? The answer is absolutely yes. And in order to study that, I want to look at the story of Nehemiah. So here's a little Old Testament history. In the year 606 B.C., okay, time out number two. If you ever wanted to doubt the importance of Jesus Christ, just look at your calendar. He stepped onto the earth and split time in half. B.C. and A.D. It's before Christ and Latin term Anno Domini. He's, our calendar is based around the life of Jesus Christ. So if you take everything else out of play, what he had to say and what he did was important. Even on something as simple as that. So, okay, back in. Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon in the year 606 B.C. comes to Jerusalem and attacks and lays waste to the city. Tears down all the walls, tears down the gates, burns them, takes everybody captive back to Babylon and, and held them as slaves for 70 years, 7-0. That's a long time. That's a lifetime for most of us. For 70 years, they're held in captivity. And at the end of that 70 years, the Babylonians come to the Jews and say, hey, we're glad you've been here. Thank you for all you've done for us. You're free to go just that fast. And so the Israelites decide, okay, what, what do we do now? All we've known for the last 70 years is, is slavery and captivity. What do we do? We're going to go back home. We're going to go see what Jerusalem's like. So they decide to go in three waves. And they send the first wave back, and it's led by a guy named Zerubbabel. Now, maybe you're looking for that new cool, hip name for your baby for next year. I don't recommend Zerubbabel as cool as that name is. It's a little hard to spell and say. But the first thing that they should have done when, Jer when Jer Zerubbabel took the people back they should have gone back and rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the gates, rebuilt the homes. They should have restored Jerusalem to its proper glory. But they didn't. They believed the lie. They showed up and they saw that Jerusalem was in ruins. It's been empty for 70 years. Nobody has done anything. And they looked at it and said, you know what, there's a lot of work to do. It's too much for us. We can't do it. And so they didn't even start. They did nothing. You go forward about 50, 50, 60 years, somewhere around in there, and a guy named Ezra brings the second wave of people. And they show up thinking, hey, maybe some of the work's been done, hopefully. And they get there and they see that nothing has been done. And they believe two lies. Number one, that it's too much work. Number two, that they couldn't do it, so neither can we. They're stuck thinking that this is impossible, so why should we even try and so they didn't do anything either. you got to go 92 years after the Babylonian says, go home. And then we pick up the story of Nehemiah. 92 years of these people living in Jerusalem in shambles. Living in shacks. No wall of protection. Susceptible to any attack that comes along at any moment. And no way to fight for themselves. 92 years of discouragement, despair. And then Nehemiah sends his brothers to go check out Jerusalem. Let's look at this in Nehemiah 1. At that time, I was in the palace. This is Nehemiah talking. In the palace complex at Susa, 
Hanani, one of my brothers, had just arrived from Judah with some fellow Jews. I asked them about the conditions among the Jews there who had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. They told me the exile survivors who are left there in the province, they're in bad shape. Conditions are appalling. The walls of Jerusalem are still rubble. The city gates are still cinders. Jerusalem's a mess. And then Nehemiah, he spends a little time processing all of this, and then he decides, I've got to go do something. Check out Nehemiah 2.17. But now I said to them, you know, this is Nehemiah talking to the people in Jerusalem. You know very well what trouble we're in. You've been living in it. He doesn't minimize the problem. He doesn't just gloss it over and act like it's not there, but he refuses to get stuck there. Watch this. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the most important advice that you could ever get is also the most obvious? Like we all need Captain Obvious walking right behind us and telling us, look, this is what you should do, dummy. Duh. So I was watching the College World Series last weekend, and the two announcers in, in between innings, they were talking to each other, and, and the one guy had been a baseball player earlier in life. And he told a story about when he was, he was uh, like in the minor leagues or whatever, and he got to noticing that he was having back pain every now and then, and, and like some muscle up in there just... Whenever he, would, whenever he would miss a ball, it just would twinge. And so he goes to the trainer and says, look, dude, my back is jacked up. I noticed that whenever I, whenever I miss and, and don't hit the ball, then some muscle just seizes up. Can you work on that muscle for me? And the trainer looked at him and said, well, duh, just don't miss. Now get out of my office. Go. Go learn how to hit better. Sometimes the most important thing we can hear is, is the most obvious Nehemiah shows up and says, yeah, the place is a mess. Let's get busy. Let's fix it. Some of you know this story. Some of you have heard the story of Nehemiah before, but I want you to look at this. Pastor Rick saw an opportunity to do God's work for God's people. That's what drove Nehemiah. Pastor Rick saw the opportunity in Arkansas, and he moved to Arkansas. Nehemiah moved back to Jerusalem. Pastor James moved to Cabot. Because we see an opportunity to do God's work, and we want to go do something about it. Remember that. One guy with hope arrives on the situation. They've been stuck for 92 years not doing anything. And then in 52 days, they have the wall rebuilt. 92 years versus 52 days. Okay? What's the difference? One guy shows up with hope. One guy shows up and says, hey, we can do this. With God's help, it's going to happen. So like Nehemiah, how do you move out of discouragement and become filled with hope to the point that it impacts everything around you? How do you do that? There's three things essential for hope that I find in the book of Nehemiah. Number one, you have to restore your spirit. You have to refresh your spirit. you got to get your eye on to God and figure out who he is in your life. Notice Nehemiah at the beginning of chapter 1. He's gotten the report back from his brothers. We're going to pick up in, in verse 4. When I heard this, when I heard the report of what Jerusalem looks like, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. For days. He's in, uh, what are we going to do? But look at verse 5, the very next verse. Nehemiah says, God, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, loyal to his covenant, 
and faithful to those who love him and obey his commands. What did Nehemiah just do? He got his eyes off of the situation and onto God, and it wrecked him, and he never recovered, and neither did the people. He got filled with hope because he found out who his father was. So there was a lady named Diane that wrote a biography about her father. She said that her father was just this normal guy. And, and like he would do her homework. He would do homework with her and help her. He would take her to school. He would pick her up from school. Uh, they would hang out in the living room in the evenings and just, just a normal guy. The things that, that dads like to do. She found out who her dad was, though, the first day of kindergarten. She went to kindergarten, and, and they, the teacher gathered everybody up in a circle and had all the students introduce themselves. So they're going around, and, and it becomes her turn. And, and so she introduces herself. And, you know, five-year-old little girl, timid as all get out. Well, my, da- my, my name is Diane Disney. And the class just took a breath like, what? Evidently, there's magic in that word. I, I don't know, right? But so the, the students start freaking out, and, and Diane, like, almost starts crying, thinking that she had done something wrong. And the teacher sees that. So she calms all the students down and said, uh, Diane, I, I think I know what's going on here, but would you mind repeating your name for us? Okay. She's getting scared at this point. Well, my name is, is Diane Disney. And now the class starts just as a buzz, like, whoa, are you kidding me? Like an accidental name drop just happened, right? But then, so the teacher calms everybody back down and says, look, I, I, I've got a handle on this, but please tell me what your dad's name is. And, and Diane kind of stuttered again and said, well, my dad's name is Walter. And now the kids are freaking out. I mean, they're just full on, what? <laughs> so the teacher looks at Diane and says, look, you got to understand, your dad... Is Walt Disney. And Diane says, she looked at the class and goes, yeah, it, Walter Disney, just a normal dude. <laughs> so the teacher looks at her and says, no, you don't get it yet. Your dad is Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Your dad is Disneyland. Your dad is Walt Disney. She said she got home that day and he's sitting in the recliner. He's got the paper up and she walked over and rips it out of, her, out of his hands, and she said, I put my little hands on my little hips. Now, I'm neither one of those, so use your imagination real quick. We are talking about Disney after all. She said, I put my little hands on my little hips and said, you never told me you were Walt Disney. And then she said this. She said, I walked around in a daze for a month because I had figured out who my dad was. Shouldn't that be us? Just how big is your God? Shouldn't that be us? We get so focused on everything that happens that's bad. We, we can get so focused on, am I going to have enough money to make it to the end of the week? We can get so focused on, man, I hate my job. Whatever it is. My prayer for you today is that you have that moment when God just wrecks your world. And then you walk around just in a daze because you figured out who your father is and how much he loves you and how much he is for you and wants to help you in every area. Number one, you got to refresh your spirit, find out who God is to you. Number two, then you have to rely on God. 
And then you refocus on serving. And these two go hand in hand. What happened with Nehemiah and the Israelites? They figured out who God was, and boom, they got to work. They got to doing something, right? When you start relying on God and when you get to work, you better believe it's just it's part of life. You're going to face some opposition. And right off the bat, some people come up against the, the Israelites. Look at Nehemiah 2.19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab. I got through that without stuttering. Hallelujah. When they, when they heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Who do you think you are trying to do this? We know you. You're, you're full of poverty. You, you have no hope. You can't do this. Bringing that lie back into their lives. <laughs> Look at Nehemiah 2.20, the very next verse. Nehemiah's great answer. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. It has nothing to do with who I am or what I can do. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. You can't come get some of this. Forget it. It's not going to happen. That statement makes all the difference in the world. Some of you sitting in the room today, God's calling you to do something. God's asking you to serve somewhere. Maybe he's asking you to give something significant. Maybe he's asking you to start something. And, and you're wrestling with that. Let me encourage you to get off your butt. Let me explain that. I want to serve, but. I want to give, but. God's asking me to do this, but. <laughs> you refresh your spirit. You begin to rely on God. You get busy doing something, even when it's scary. E even when the opposition amps up. Look at Nehemiah 4.21. When, when times got tough, what did they do? They worked early and late from sunrise to sunset. Time out number three. This is not biblical approval for being a workaholic. Okay? What this means is they got so focused on God they got so determined to do the work, they didn't have time to listen to a lie. They didn't have time for discouragement to take hold in, in their hearts. They just got busy and got to work. Roll up your sleeves, get back to work on your marriage. You can have a great marriage. Nobody's going to have a perfect one, but you can have a great one. Go back and get that college degree that you've been talking about for 15, 20 years. Go back and do it. Find you a place around here to plug in and get busy serving God. Give a rip about somebody. Be that encourager that they need you to be and watch God work. When we want what God wants for the reasons that he wants it, then we're unstoppable. Dare you. Number three, last point, refuse to give up. Just refuse. At one point, the Israelites quit working on the wall. Because the opposition got so bad. Remember, discouragement is a repeating disease. You can land there again. Nehemiah comes back one more time in Nehemiah 4.14. After looking these things over, I spoke to the nobles, officials, and everyone else. Don't be afraid of them. Put your minds on the master, great and awesome. And then fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. America! I'm just kidding. <laughs> Key phrase. Don't, don't be afraid of them. 
Put your mind on the master. Get your eyes off the junk and on to God who can deliver and provide everything you need. And that's what, go fight for your marriage. Go fight for your family. Fight for your kids. There are things in life that are worth fighting for. So I want to end with one, one more story. Jesus taught with parables. And that's a fancy word to say that he used common stories. That's why we do big screen. It's the, we, we're using common everyday language to explain a spiritual truth. And in Luke, he starts talking about a guy. Luke 15, he starts talking about a man that has two sons. Maybe you've heard the story of the prodigal son before. If you haven't, here's the details. A man has two sons, and, and one son comes to him and says, Dad, I want my inheritance. You have to understand that in that day, inheritance only came when, when the father died. So this is basically the kid coming and saying, Dad, you mean nothing to me. It's as if you're already gone and out of my life. I only want from you what's left after you're gone, but I want it now. So the father says, okay, gives it to him. Son goes off into a far land. We don't know how far. We just know it says it's a far land. And then he wasted his inheritance on riotous living, wild living. He went and had a party. He went and had fun. He went and did just whatever he wanted to do. And then eventually the money ran, ran out. It always does. And the Bible says that when, when the money ran out, a famine hit the land. And it hit so hard that this dude couldn't even get a job. The economy is fickle. Sometimes it can be tough to find employment. To find a job that's enough. Okay? So he's out there and now all of a sudden he's broke and he doesn't have a job. And he says that he winds up working for a pig farmer. And he winds up feeding the pigs. And the only thing that he has to eat is the pig's leftovers. Any of y'all ever been to a pig farm? I was blessed enough one time in my life to go. I hope I'm never blessed that way again. I'm, okay, so here's what happens. When, let's say you go get a, a dozen bananas and you only eat eight of them. And then the four sit on your counter and rot. If you're a pig farmer, that's a meal for a pig. What we call rotten, they eat it up, Literally. But then this guy says, okay, there's like a half of a piece of peel over there that the pig didn't eat, and that's what I'm going to live on today. But then the Bible says he came to himself. He came to his senses, and he realized, I'm in a mess right now, but if I go back to my father's house, he didn't say if I go home, because he's already disqualified himself from ever being able to go back as a son he's believed that lie I've gone too far I've been gone too long my father's never going to take me back (laughs) so he believes this lie and and he drafts this speech to his father and says look I I will gladly come be your servant he believes the lie that I'm not qualified to be a son and basically he says Please put me into slavery. 
please. Because I know that if I have to eat the crumbs off of the servant's table, it's better than where I'm at. And so he, he drafts this speech, he perfects it, he walks home, and then he sees his dad, and boom, there's the speech, word for word. What's the father's first actions? He just completely ignored everything that the son had to say. Just didn't even hear it. And throws a party. You want to talk about a bounce back? Some of the folks we talked about earlier, they didn't get a party. This guy did. I mean, like the whole town knew he's back. And the, and the father's words were, this is my son who was dead, but now he's alive. Immediate restoration back to where the father wanted him to be. But I want to look at this from a little different angle. We have no reference of how far the kid went or how long he was gone. Now, I'm a numbers geek. I freely admit that. I wanted to find some kind of formula there that would tell me how long he was gone because (laughs) the story says that when he was a long way off, the father saw him. Okay, there's got, I, I don't see an email. I don't see a text message. I don't see a phone call. I don't even see a carrier pigeon. None of that is in there to let the father know that this is the day. So what do I have to assume from that? Every day, watch this. Every day, that father standing out on his front porch going, is this the day that my son's coming home? Is this the day that I get to see him again? Is this the day I get to restore him to his proper place? So then I have to be able to tell you, you can't go too far. You can't be gone too long. He's looking for you right now. Let's bow our heads. God, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that you're reaching for us right where we're at. That you want to speak to us right where we're at. And so God, right now, I'm asking you to begin to speak to our hearts. Help us figure out who you are and just how big you are and just how much you're concerned about our lives and how much you want to help us. Help us have that moment, God, where we just, we get it. And maybe we come back, maybe we're here today, God, believing the lie that that we've been gone too long. Maybe the enemy's been telling us that we're too messed up. God will never take us back. Please disprove that lie in our lives this morning. And if you're here and you've never gotten to know God, you've never accepted Jesus, What a a great day to be able to do that. If that's you, please slip up your hand. I want to pray with you. Please let us know. God is here and looking for you. Thank you. Thank you. If you've been wrestling with something that God's been asking you to do, man, today's the day to get it figured out. Today's the day to find out just how big he is how much he's wanting to use you to encourage somebody else. If you've been 
waffling about, can I do this? Please slip up your hand and let me know. I want to pray with you too. God is wanting you to be an effective part of his kingdom. Thank you. Thank you. God wants you to do something, to give a rip, to get involved. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for for your heart for us, for your call on our lives, for your desire that we be for you amazing things and that you can work through us to reach somebody else. God, I thank you for people that are turning their hearts towards you, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, but thank you because I know that you've been watching and I know that you've been looking for today might be the day. You are faithful. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, if you're thankful for the word of God. Yep.